Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Professor David Jacobson about his new book, The Charm of Wise Hesitancy, Talmudic Stories in Contemporary Israeli Culture. Jacobson, a professor of Judaic studies at Brown University, offers in this book an overview and detailed analysis of one of the most intriguing cultural phenomena in contemporary Israel a return to the supposedly religious Jewish bookshelf. Uh, It's a return that happens by both self-proclaimed secularist Israelis and Orthodox Jews. Uh, Specifically, Jacobson is interested in Israeli reading of of Talmudic narratives and the way these readings reflect upon contemporary Jewish-Israeli identity. His book situates the phenomena in its socio-historical context and offers a detailed analysis of the discourse on certain Talmudic narratives. Professor Jacobson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I wonder if you could begin by telling us uh, a bit about the background for writing the book. Can you maybe please uh, describe how you came to study the phenomena of new Israeli Talmudic readings? Well, I would say, first of all, that most of my research throughout my career has been on the relationship between modern Jewish culture and the Jewish tradition, uh, particularly as explored by Hebrew writers. Initially, I worked on Hebrew writers in Eastern Europe, and then over time, this became a more central phenomenon among Israeli writers, and that eventually became my focus. Um, My first book was uh, on um, the relationship of the modern Hebrew writers of the late 19th and early 20th century, to um, traditional texts and how they retold biblical narratives, rabbinic legends, and Hasidic tales. And they did this in an attempt to connect those texts to their contemporary concerns. Uh, Over time, uh, subsequent books, uh, in subsequent books, I uh, wrote on biblical imagery and religious themes in contemporary Israeli poetry. And the book before this current book uh, was, in it, I focused on a group of religious Zionist West Bank settlers 
who adopted the forms of so-called secular Israeli poetry to write about their religious concerns. This book is really a continuation of this, uh, my longstanding interest in the relationship between modernity and tradition, but it takes a, I took me in a new direction. Rather than write about works of belletra, uh, fiction, poetry that adapts um, and retells the biblical, uh, and, uh, uh, biblical uh, stories and other religious narratives, um, I, I turned to the study of how contemporary Israelis read these Talmudic stories that you referred to. Um, and I really, I got the idea for the, for the book beginning in the early 2000s. I was uh, browsing in Israeli bookstores, and I noticed that there were a number of anthologies coming out at the beginning of the 2000s, anthologies of Talmudic legends, which presented contemporary interpretations of those legends. And I began to say to myself, I think there's a trend here. And so I, um, uh, I began to, and to look into it, and that's uh, what eventually the result was this, uh, was this book. Yes. So uh, maybe you can uh, describe this trend or the phenomenon in some details for those who are not uh, familiar with it. Okay, well, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, this comes out of the, uh, the cultural phenomenon of the return to the Jewish bookshelf, as, it, as it's called. Um, and this phenomenon was largely a very, as you say, significant phenomenon in Israeli culture in which secular Israelis began to question the fact that in their education, there had been a kind of repression or marginalization of post-biblical texts. Um, Israeli secular Zionist culture looked to the Bible as essentially the source for values, the source for religious vision, or I would say cultural vision. And um, they um, began to question that. They began to say to themselves, this focus on the Bible doesn't work for us. Um, it works better in a time of more, one might say, Zionist triumphalism, a sense of uh, the return to the land, the assumption of power. Um, and they were living in a very different time, um, a time in which Israel had gone through a tremendous amount of, of ongoing struggle, that the Zionist dream was turned out to be not fulfilled immediately with 1948, that there were many issues and even a sense of vulnerability that, uh, that came uh, that came. Uh, to be felt. And so they were looking for other sources, other sources that spoke to them, and they just, they, in a sense, rediscovered rabbinic texts. And one genre that became particularly attractive to them were these, uh, were these uh, Talmudic stories. It started really, interestingly enough, it started the return to the Jewish bookstores, uh, a, book, a bookshelf started uh, initially in the, um, uh, in the kibbutz, secular kibbutz movement in the 1960s. Over time, it began to spread beyond the kibbutzim. Um, it became institutionalized in what were known as, what are still known as, uh, as alternative batei midrash, alternative study houses, where secular, secular Israeli Jews would come and study post-biblical texts. And it's really out of this phenomenon that these anthologies and also articles that interpret Talmudic stories um, emerged. <clears throat> yes. So uh, I think there's, I think it became a trend, if I'm not mistaken uh, myself, by you know uh, analyzing a scene I've been probably part of. It uh, it became a trend uh, after the assassination of Rabin and um, what was called then the soul searching that uh, overtook uh, 
Jewish Israeli society at large. But you 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 rightfully make the point in your book that this this didn't start in the 1990s. This has a a longer history in a sense of the. Well, uh, the disenchantment with secularism, in a sense. Yes, this is dis- disenchantment with uh, with uh, secular Zionist uh, ideology and with secularism, in a sense that something was missing. Something was missing, and there, the previous generations, the ones, uh, the parents, the grandparents of the people who went in this new direction, um, had their own reasons for rejecting um, uh, rabbinic culture. Um, and it had, largely had to do with the fact that they associated rabbinic culture, rabbinic texts, with all that they saw as being problematic in the diaspora. And they saw it really as a barrier to, um, uh, to the Zionist revolution, cultural revolution that they were trying to, um, that they were trying to, uh, uh, to develop. Now, as typically happens is revolutionaries have their ideology, but then the next generation comes along and says, but wait a minute, we don't feel the need to reject these texts. We're not fighting against them. They're not the texts of our youth that we think are repressing us. We actually are finding a lot that's interesting, and that gives us a whole other dimension of understanding of what it means to be Jewish um, and what it means to be Israeli that uh, was, was sort of taken away from us. Some, some will talk about the fact, why was this hidden from us? Um, and there's a kind of a rebellion of, of, uh, of uh, kind of the return of the repressed, as you might say. Yes. <laughs> And interestingly, uh, this is still done under the guise of secularism. Uh, many of the, uh, well, the leaders of the movement would reject any accusation, quote-unquote, that what they're doing is actually an act of uh, uh, religionization or return to religion or even a religious reading of the text. This, yeah, this became a really big issue in the, going back to the, uh, to the kibbutz setting, the secular kibbutz setting. When um, certain figures in the kibbutz um, uh, in the kibbutz movement started to, uh, Avraham Shapiro was one of the main, for instance, one of the main leaders of this phenomenon, started to introduce the study of post-biblical texts. People, some people were really horrified. Um, they said, "What are you trying to do? You're trying to make us chosrim b'tshuva. You're trying to get us to go back." and be fully observant Orthodox Jews, and people were felt very threatened by it. And over time, people began to realize that one can study these texts on their own as works of literature, as works that explore a whole variety of, uh, of, um, of very interesting issues that are relevant as relevant today as they were when they were written. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one is going to adopt the halakha as a lifestyle. And I think over time, more and more secular Israelis began to realize that this wasn't a threat to their essentially secular identity. Um, but what's also interesting is that as this developed in, in, um, uh, over time, one, be- one can begin to see a phenomenon of some of the secular Israelis studying these texts who said, but you know, maybe we should try to explore certain aspects of religious life, not just study the text. And so you had the, the formation of... Uh, of uh, prayer communities by so-called secular Jews who said, we want to pray. And that became very problematic, of course, because if you don't believe in God or if you're, if you're an agnostic, how do you pray? And all sorts of issues, but they did it anyway. And some of these communities then began to observe Shabbat together and began holidays together and life cycles together. So it's an interesting way in which they had to find their own way beyond just the study of the text to actually creating new kinds of communities that are by so-called secular Jews who are rediscovering the, the, the wealth of experience one can get out of the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I just want to note, I remember re- reading once a uh, critique by, I can't remember, recall the name, uh, a very fierce critic of, uh, of, of the movement of the return to the Jewish bookshelf who argued that the very immersion of oneself in the Jewish text would uh, amount to, some, uh, to one's becoming Jewish or becoming religion, religious, I'm sorry. Uh, for uh, this critic, the, f- the, the very opening of the book was already uh, uh, an act of succumbing to religious uh, uh, power, um, which is the context against which it happens. Yeah, I write in the book about uh, what, ha- what has now in Israeli circles become a well-known uh, speech um, by, um, uh, by Ruth Calderon, who at the time, she was one of the leaders of this return to the Jewish bookshelf. And for a brief period of time, she was a member of Knesset. In her introductory uh, talk, she actually taught a, a, from, the, from the dais of the, uh, of the, of the Knesset, she, uh, she taught a Talmudic story. And there were secular Israelis who were really horrified by this because they said, look what's happening. Here we have a fellow secular Israeli trying to push us over to the side of the Orthodox, the Orthodox who impose religion on us, the Orthodox who are anti-democratic. And her message, what, and the message of those who I write about in the, in the book, is that this is literature that doesn't, that can actually be studied outside the context of a particular commitment to a particular set of observances or even belief system. <clears throat> yes. I recall that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, speaking of uh, Ruth Calderon's speech, it has become a cultural phenomenon among Jews outside of Israel. And this brings me actually to the, um, uh, to the second topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is actually the is distinguished Israeli characteristics of these readings. Um, what would you say distinguishes those readings that you uh, uh, review in your book from other engagements with Talmudic text, both in Israel and outside of it? Well, um, first of all, this gives me an opportunity um, to mention another dimension that actually surprised me. When I went into studying this material, I assumed that it would be about this return to the Jewish bookshelf by secular Israelis who had not been educated in post-biblical culture and who were rediscovering it. Along the way, I discovered that there is a parallel phenomenon among religious Zionist Israelis. So those who are might return to America, we might refer to them as, as, as modern Orthodox in orientation. Um, and it turns out that while the secular Israelis experienced the repression of rabbinic texts because it was threatening to their parents' ideology, their grandparents' ideology, these religious Zionists certainly didn't experience the repression of religious texts, but what was repressed were actually the legends and the Talmud. And there was a long-standing tradition among, particularly in Eastern European um, uh, yeshivot, that became the basis for the Israeli religious Zionist study of, of, of Torah, to when they would, when they would read the Talmud, they would skip over the, uh, the legendary material that's actually embedded with the, uh, with the, with the legal material. And they would skip over it and say, well, it's not important. We, got, we have to look at the legal text and not the, rabbinic, and not the legendary text. And around the same time, and I think to some extent under the influence of the secular interest in, in Talmudic uh, stories, uh, religious Zionists in certain yeshivot began to say, let's actually study these. These really have a lot to offer us, as well as the legendary material. Now, of course, this is very what, what, what goes on, whether it's written by a religious Zionist writer or a secular writer. Um, this type of reading is very different from the traditional reading. So I, you know, it's important to distinguish it. 
is, of course, a longstanding tradition of, um, of, uh, of traditional commentaries, whether it's the commentaries on the Talmud, Rashi, the medieval uh, scholar, um, and then uh, later his followers, the Tosafot, um, many different commentaries specifically on rabbinic legends, but they're all within a context of Orthodox Judaism. They're largely a diaspora context, and they have a very different flavor from, from what these texts are doing, because what these texts are doing is they are, of course, reflect two revolutions in Jewish culture. One is the Zionist revolution and the, um, and the emergence of Israeli sovereignty within Israel. The other, of course, is the, uh, is the modern questioning of religion and the crisis of faith that comes with modernity. That's their starting point. And the, the whole quality, the whole way that they approach it is very different from that of the, uh, of the traditional commentaries. Now, if you want to ask about outside, um, people do often ask me, um, is there a similar phenomenon in America, um, which, of course, is the, is the, is the other uh, you know, primary uh, or, or, or large uh, uh, Jewish population? And I would say, no, not really. That's not to say that there aren't people here who study, who study rabbinic legends and who find it interesting and who are attracted to it, both secular, Israeli, secular American Jews and, and, and Orthodox and, and other types of religious Jews in America. It just does not, has not taken on the same kind of cultural force that it has within Israel. And, and it's because all the, the reasons why people turn to it, particularly the secular Israelis turn to it, it's really that kind of context doesn't exist in America. So it's, it's really, I, I don't see the same thing going on. Um, there's some interest. Some of the material has been translated, and which is very good, and people begin to read it. But it, you, one can't really compare what's going on in Israel with, uh, with what's going on in America. So other than being mostly happening in Israel, what, uh, what's uniquely Israeli about the, these readings in terms of uh, content and, uh, and framework of uh, analysis? I would say um, the um, the analysis is uh, on one hand, and what I think makes it accessible to people outside of Israel is, on one level, the extent to which this is a these are modern, or one might say postmodern readings of these texts, then that's an aspect that I think isn't necessarily uniquely Israeli. That's an aspect that Jews throughout the world can relate to. And it really comes down to the question of, are these texts relevant? Can we find anything in this text that is, that is relevant, regardless of whether one observes anything or believes anything or whatever? And uh, in that sense, um, they contribute both to the development of Jewish culture in Israel and potentially uh, it, could, it could to the development outside of, of Israel as well. These are, um, these are, are such, one of the things that really attracted me to these stories is they are such well-crafted stories. As a, as a person, as a, as a literature person, I just began to so appreciate they're in a minimalistic style. They somehow capture the essence of the issue that they're relating to. And they relate to issues that are common to, um, uh, that, that, that anybody can recognize as relevant, whether it's power struggles, issues in marriage, um, uh, relations between children and, and parents and children. Um, all of this, these are these universal issues that anybody can relate to. But the other piece to it that particularly is, in, that is, 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 is Israel is the extent to which they provide uh, alternative insights into issues related, whether it's political issues, social issues related to Israel. And I would say fundamentally the reason why um, 
that, that this has caught on among many secular Israelis is that I think they find in this a, a, a period of Jewish culture in which, if you think about it, it's written at a time when uh, either the rabbis are living under under Roman uh, under Roman rule. They are politically vulnerable. They don't really have the sovereignty that Israel Israel has. And and then, of course, subsequently in Babylonia, where again they're in diaspora, they're not um, and they're not under that not don't have a sense of political sovereignty. But I think what it reflects is the sense that what's what's particularly uh, interesting from a culture point of view is that Israelis over time, with the ongoing um, uh, uh, frustrations of the, of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict and the recognition of the fact that Israel is not only, cannot only exist on its own without the help of anybody else, that, that, very, that, very, um, uh, conf- that conflict, of course, uh, has made Israel dependent on, on other countries outside. That blurring of a distinction between what it means to live in diaspora, what it means to live in in, uh, in, in Zionism, and so the very sense of vulnerability that the rabbis had, the sense of confusion, the sense of, of who are we, what is our power, where where is God, all these kinds of things um, actually really resonate very well in a in a post Holocaust world, and also in an Israeli context where. The power that Israelis have to um, control their fate is more limited than Zionism promised them. Yes. However, I would say it would be. I mean, I, I think it's still interesting that it has not developed into a full-fledged alternative Jewish political philosophy. The readings are done under the guise of a cultural re-engaging with the text in a specific, as you say, political context, but they don't amount to a critique of Jewish sovereignty in Israel or the way it is understood. Not, not a critique, but a recognition. I would say, it, no, it's true. It's not, it hasn't fueled any kind of political movement, but it's an admission that Israelis are more vulnerable than uh, they are sometimes willing to admit to themselves. Um, and... A, a way of dealing with the helplessness that Israelis experience, and this whole, all the various, you know, the, the various traumas of uh, of the Six Day War vulnerability before the final victory, or the vulnerability of the Yom Kippur War, um, and then of course the intif- the first Intifada, the second Intifada. So it's not a movement that fuels a political. It's not something that fuels a political movement, but it's a it's a set of texts that, from a political point of view reflect the feeling of Israelis that sovereignty, ultimately when sovereignty is, 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 is limited in, uh, in, in this world, and, it's, and at least it reinforces the sense that um, there's a reality out there that the so-called Zionist dream of, you know, to be a free people, to be a people in charge of your fate, it's, it turns out it's, it's, it's much more complicated than, uh, than Zionist ideology had, uh, had, said, had said it would be. Yet, uh, for people looking from the outside in and expecting uh, ev- everything in Israeli politics to uh, at least have some connection to the conflict, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, as far as I can understand, these readings don't have much to offer in this regard, or they don't explicitly deal with uh, the situation of, uh, of an occupation or uh, uh, the presence of uh, of a large, uh, well, a continuous uh, uh, security threat. 
as it is. No, no, they don't. I don't think that they really lend themselves to um, uh, to to a political critique. One sees this. I see this a little bit in some religious Zionists. Of writers who have um, dealt with these texts, uh, I, it's 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 a it's a it's a small voice. It's not an influential voice, but I see the um, I, I see that in um, it it kind of can can support those in those again. It's as a, as as you well know. It's a it, to the extent to which it exists. It's not influential. It's not politically influential. But there are some among the religious Zionist thinkers who are concerned ultimately with the moral dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They have almost no influence on their, you know, political, you know, socio-political context. Um, but one sees here and there, one sees this, um, uh, one, one sees this um, sensitivity to and recognition vulnerability and a recognition of we are not going to be able to do everything we want, that there are other forces, including including the fact that there's another nation here uh, that is claiming the land. But I don't want to overstate that because it's there's not really a movement. You know, there have been within religious Zionism there have been these sort of you know more you know left-leaning or or dovish elements, but as we well know, they are largely were have been largely silenced mm-hmm. in recent years. Yes. So uh, let's uh, expand a little bit the discussion on the socio-political context or back, backdrop of these uh, readings uh, regarding the group of, uh, of, of, of students, of readers. Um, would it be correct to identify this mostly as a middle-class Ashkenazi engagement with the text? Yes, absolutely. It's an Ashkenazi phenomenon, and it is, uh, it is largely... It is largely middle class, although there have been attempts to set up a Tamidrush in some of the development towns. And while I don't know the specifics of it, my sense is that in, in setting these up in the development towns, they're probably reaching uh, uh, a somewhat, you know, less than middle class uh, population, which, of course, dominates the development towns. But not being a sociologist, I don't know exactly how that's working out. But this definitely, as I said, it started with the kibbutzim. And then when it spread into the, into the cities, into Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, it was middle class. It was Ashkenazic. It's really a product of the Ashkenazic, uh, the, the trajectory of the Ashkenazic breakdown of relationship to tradition and then the attempt to recover it. Um, I'm not enough of an expert in Mizrahi culture to be able to say, why it didn't develop in Israeli culture, but I think all the various aspects that I've talked about already are very much part of the, the European Jewish experience and that of those who emigrated to Israel. Um, but I think, I think it's largely true. I think some Israelim have excelled in, in part. I think what I, what's obvious to all observers of Israeli culture is that one of the ways that the return to tradition has expressed itself among Israelim is, of course, through, through, the, through music. And through the uh, revival of interest in Piyut and, and in Mizrahi religious uh, uh, religious um, uh, uh, religious uh, poetry, and uh, it's it's a very different trajectory. I think one could also make the argument that uh, among uh, Mizrahi Jews, there has no been such a break with tradition that would not be that, that would then be needed to uh, an amendment by way of a return. Uh, but also, there's the issue of. 
uh, one's ability to invest time and resources in this kind of study. This is a privilege of, um, of well, of, of, of certain classes. Not everybody can. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and that explains why it is a largely, uh, yeah. a largely middle class. Uh, yeah. Middle class phenomenon. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, in uh, in the opening of your uh, uh, of your uh, answers that uh, the engagement with the text was not necessarily meant to be uh, tied to other realms of life. It was initially seen as only textual, and only gradually did it become something that is also touching about other realms of uh, of life, such as observance or let's call it ritualistic uh, 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 manifestation of one's Jewishness. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. What was so intimidating about the ritual in the first place? I think it's you know what you um, what you had uh, referred to earlier is is, is a sense of um, we are secular, and as secular Israelis, we're the product of a of a whole of a need to rebel against um, the way of life, the orthodox way of life in Europe. Because the, that orthodox way of life was, in fact, what kept us stuck in Europe, which didn't allow us to dream about the possibility of returning to Zion. After all, as is well known, the, the, the orthodox rabbinic establishment in, in, in Europe completely opposed Zionism. They saw it as heretical. And so there's a longstanding sense of alienation from that tradition. Um, and I think the other aspect, of course, is the hostility toward uh, toward uh, religious coercion in the sense that secular Israelis have argued against the need to, um, against religious legislation that they see limit themselves. And so people kind of came into it with a sense of, of, okay, I'll study the text, but I don't want to associate myself with that, with that orthodoxy that is so culturally problematic and, and, and has much too much political power. What I think that the, these and other Ashkenazim had to discover was that it's not all or nothing. I think that's partly what the Mizrahi culture has not taken an all or nothing approach to it. There's a, there's a fluidity in terms of identity. One does Kiddush on Friday night, but goes to a soccer game the next day. And there's a kind of an openness to many different ways of being loyal to tradition at the same time, living the kind of life you want to live. And once they've got over that kind of that sense of this is really there's something really wrong with with returning to to traditional ritual ritual observance. I think what they realized was there is something about prayer, there's something about religious observance that can actually be meaningful, whether you identify as orthodox or not. And once they got over the hump of their prejudice, they started exploring it little by little. And I think that's I think that's what to happen. I think, uh, in my understanding, uh, something that lies behind uh, the phenomena and the reactions to it is, well, a historical identity crisis, a Jewish identity crisis that has plagued uh, the Zionist movement from its uh, inception. The idea of being a national movement of the Jews, yet uh, rebelliously rejecting what Jews have traditionally seen as uh, defining them as Jews. Yeah, that, you know, to use that unfortunate metaphor of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that's essentially what what, what secular Zionism did. They had their reasons, and I understand their reasons for doing it. You know, when you are engaged in a cultural or political revolution, sometimes it, it initially takes on a kind of an all or nothing. You know, let's just tear it all down and rebuild it. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and so it does, once the revolution is over, once people are back to living a life and they're not trying to engage the next generations and not engaging in any kind of revolution, 
they are freer to return to what their parents and grandparents had rejected. And it's not as much of an issue for them. And they discover what's, what's really very uh, enriching about, uh, about engaging with this tradition. And so they're, you know, ultimately some kind of new Jewish identity is emerging within Israel. But of course, it's a very fractured identity because the groups are, are so, you know, so, so different. But this is one probably small, but I would say significant model of how one can recover, maintain uh, some kind of Israeli Jewish identity, but that also integrates into it uh, the rich, the rich, the riches of the of the of, of the of the heritage of the religious heritage. Mm-hmm. So, how do you assess the viability or the longevity of the phenomenon? It's a good question. Um, <clears throat> it's still going on. Um, it's going on in um, actually, you know, more recent directions that don't seem to be actually. Um, Debating uh, any time in the future, so the after the after the uh, what the so-called alternative study houses emerge, the next institutional embodiment that I find to be really significant, and I think is going to have a long-term. Um, and I'm really not talking specifically about the reading of Talmudic uh, stories; that would be one piece of it. But the larger issue of this return to the uh, Jewish book, books, bookshelf is the emergence of the so-called uh, secular yeshiva. So the secular yeshiva, uh, founded by the Bina movement um, in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, in Be'er Sheva, now <clears throat> is a um, does exact continues this, and um, there is, I think, a uh, an ongoing um, engagement by people of secular background in this study, and a sense that somehow. We need something like this. I think it's going to keep going. I think it's going to continue um, because I think that at least certain segments of the population who come from a secular background are, in effect, saying we need more than just to be a secular citizen of, of, of the Israeli state. We need more. And I think, I think it is going to continue. It, it uh, will be one of the ways that people relate to their Israeli Jewish uh, identity that I, that I think is, I think, I think it's going to get passed on for a while. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a fascinating chapter in the ongoing history of uh, Israelis trying to grapple with the meaning of Israel being a Jewish state and with their own Jewishness. Well, Professor Jacobson, we've uh, taken too much of your time. Uh, can you tell us in closing what you are currently working on? Well, <clears throat> it appears that I cannot free myself from my obsession with the question of the relationship between modernity and tradition. Um, and this has characterized my, uh, my entire uh, uh, scholarly uh, work. And so I'm actually going to return to where I started. So where this actually started was, my interest in this topic was, in my dissertation, which was on the retelling of Hasidic tales by late 19th and early 20th century Hebrew writers in Eastern Europe. Uh, Peretz, Berdachevsky, and others. And um, I then incorporated my first book into a larger concern of modern Hebrew writers retelling traditional tales. Um, <clears throat> the new trend that I've become very fascinated by and that continues, um, that I think is continuing to be a very important um, uh, phenomenon uh, within Israeli culture is the, is the turn to Hasidism. <clears throat> this takes up many different forms. Um, probably the most famous being now the, the fascination with Nachman Abratzlov. And that, by the way, is, only, is, is, is among Ashkenazic and Mizrahi Jews, which is interesting in itself. 
Um, and um, what I want to focus on being a person who focuses on literature, I want to focus on the renewed interest in the Hasidic tales in contemporary Israeli culture. And um, so that I'm at the beginning of this point now, and I've identified two types, sets of writers who are turning to Hasidic tales to enrich their understanding of what their main concerns are. One is, interestingly enough, psychologists, particularly clinical psychologists, um, who look to Hasidic tales for insights related to therapy and the understanding of the human psyche. This is not surprising because Hasidism had a preoccupation, has had a preoccupation with the individual psyche. It's been very central to Hasidism, one of the things that distinguishes Hasidism from the earlier uh, uh, mystical movements. Uh, the other group are actually um, uh, a number of religious Zionist thinkers, um, because as I mentioned before, these Eastern European yeshivot that are the basis for Torah study in Israel today, not only did they skip over the legends, but they weren't Hasidic. They weren't interested in Hasidism. It was a very much of, a, uh, of, of an anti-Hasidic and non-Hasidic context. But the inheritors of that, of that, uh, of that uh, uh, Torah tradition have, in a sense, kind of rediscovered uh, Hasidism, the Hasidic tale, Hasidic teachings, as a way to enrich their religiosity. So that's where I'm going now. It's right at the beginning. It's an exciting time to kind of figure out what it's all about. And I uh, spend time in Israel, of course, talking to people and reading back here. And, and uh, so hopefully it will come together uh, as, as my next published work. Well, it sounds like a wonderful project. I wish you uh, all success with it. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Uh, take care. And uh, to you listeners, thank you for listening. And please make sure to check out other interviews in our newly established Israel Studies channel. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.